Today, I'm going to be speaking on the Canaanite woman or the Syrophoenicianite woman and how she pushed through until she got mercy from Jesus. If you have your Bibles with you, you might like to turn to Matthew chapter 15 and verse 21. Matthew chapter 15 and verse 21. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her, Not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. This is a remarkable account. And we find Jesus in a very unlikely place. And then he meets a very unlikely person, which leads to a very unlikely event unfurling. The unlikely place was Tyre and Sidon. Verse 21, Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. What was happening? He was going outside Israel. Now, we've already read that he said that his first phase of his ministry... That's his three years ministry on earth, was specifically to the Jews. The day of Pentecost, we're celebrating that next weekend, was when the ministry of Jesus to the Jews then opened to the whole world. And Tyre and Sidon, or Phoenicia as the Greeks called it, Canaan, was the historical enemy of the Israelites, especially in the Old Testament times. They were the enemies of the Jews. Tyre and Sidon was an unclean place. Why Jesus and his disciples had left Israel to go into this place, we don't know. Maybe it was a leading of the Holy Spirit. Maybe they needed a break from uh, the notoriety and the, the, and, and the popular people going for them. Who knows? It was obviously a leading of the Holy Spirit. But it was an, an unclean place with unclean people. Now, this is important, this understanding of outside and inside clean and unclean, because if you just go a few verses back in chapter 15, before we get to this Canaanite woman's story, we have Jesus debating with the top Jewish scholars about what it is to be clean before God and acceptable before God, and to be unclean and outside God's blessing. So he, he quotes Isaiah saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far, far from me. He says, 
It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a man. He then says, uh, do you not understand, in verse 17, whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. You see the context. He's dealing with who's in and who's out, who's clean and who's defiled before God. And then straight after that, he leaves the clean, if I can put it that way, environment of Israel into this Gentile Tyre and Sidon. And there he meets an unlikely person, not only a bold woman that that came to these Jews on holiday in Tyre and Sidon, a woman of Canaan. Matthew calls her a woman of Canaan. Immediately Jews reading this, and Matthew's gospel was written specifically for a Jewish audience, would, would cringe at this idea of their ancient enemy, the, the Canaanites. Interestingly, she greets him as the son of David. Uh, Jesus, a direct lineage of, the, of David, who was one of the greatest enemies of these Canaanites. Now, in Mark's version, in chapter 7, he gives us a little bit more information. Not only was she a Canaanite, Syrophoenician by race, but she was a Greek. She was versed in Greek culture. She'd have spoken with Jesus in Greek, the common language of the ancient world. And uh, she was a Gentile. So she was outside the lost sheep of Israel. She was outside the covenant of God. Remember this. This is important. Now, this is an interesting situation because you would think, well, you know, what right does this woman have if she's outside or unclean to approach Jesus, the Jewish Messiah? Well, we do know in history that there were some precedents for God's mercy reaching people in Tyre and Sidon. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus is speaking about how the people that were in the covenant, covenant, the Jews, how many of them would not accept his prophet, prophetic message, but one day those that are outside the covenant would. He says in Luke 4, verse 24, Then Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, this region we're talking about, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet And none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So there Jesus is hinting at the fact that if he's going to be rejected by his own people, there are people outside his own people that would accept willingly and hungrily the message that he had to give them. Not only that, but in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 3 and verse 5, the great genealogy of Jesus and his ancestry... There were two people in his direct ancestry, both women, who were Canaanites. Rahab, do you remember Rahab, the prostitute? 
she was in the direct lineage of not only David but Jesus and also Naaman. She was, uh, uh, sorry, Tamar. She was also a Syrian. So in Jesus's ancestry, there were these places of grace where God had reached out from his people to touch those that were not his people. This is going to be important for us as we go through this story. And then the unlikely event took place. Look at this woman in verse 22. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely possessed. Now, we see here a desperate situation. Uh, But more importantly, very much more importantly than seeing a desperate situation or circumstance, we see a desperate person. This is a terrible situation that she was facing with her daughter. Uh, Maybe she had epilepsy or something, but this was a terrible scenario. But because she was a desperate person, she refused to accept the status quo. And this this is what marks her out. Because there were many other desperate situations and circumstances going on in people's lives in Tyre and Sidon. There were many desperate and difficult circumstances going on in people's lives in Israel, in Galilee, in Judea. But the difference here is not that she was going through a desperate situation, but that she was a desperate person. Desperate people bring change. You know, you can have a desperate situation, but if you deal with that situation, give up on that situation, or say, well, what can I do about it, or accept that desperate situation, you would never find yourself in the place that the Canaanite found herself in. She was a great mother. She loved her daughter greatly. She'd do anything to change the circumstance, and it was her desperation that was eventually going to move the hand of God and change the status quo that she and her daughter were trapped in. But it wasn't easy for her. Four times she was rebuffed in her desire for Jesus to aid her in a desperate situation. The first time, if we look at this in verse 23, she cries out to Jesus, she's in his presence, and what does he do? It says, but he answered her not a word. Can you imagine that scenario? A desperate woman with a desperate scenario, crying out in front of the master, and he simply blanks her doesn't respond to her or acknowledge what she said in any way, shape, or form. You know, a lot of people would have stopped right there. They'd have been offended, annoyed. They would have questioned the mercy or or pity of, of this man. Maybe they'd have said, hey, you know, forget it. There's plenty of prophets from other religions that I can go and find, plenty of other gods, if you won't even acknowledge that I've spoken to you. But you know, sometimes we can feel like we're in the same situation as believers. Have you ever been in a desperate situation and become desperate about change, gone in prayer desperately to God, and you didn't hear him speak to you, the circumstance didn't change, but it seemed that as you cried out to to heaven, the heavens closed up against you. It seemed that the window shut and the door of heaven shut and Jacob's ladder 
was drawn up into heaven and you got blanked. You're desperate. The situation's desperate. You desperately cry out to the Lord and nothing happens. You don't even get a touch of, I'm with you, my child. In fact, things get worse. You you feel further from God. God seems farther from you. The situation gets stronger and stronger. And you wonder, why not a word? You know, that is enough for some Christians to give up altogether on prayer. And you know what the problem is? If this this woman had, had gone away from any of these rebuffs that we're, lo- we're looking at, she wouldn't have had her status quo change. She wouldn't have had a testimony. That was the first one. Silence from heaven. Silence from the master. The next rejection was from the disciples. And they said, send her away, for she cries out after us. And so even they had had enough of her. And she wouldn't let go, and she kept crying out. They were moved by her compassion. Why? Because she was outside, in their minds, the covenant. They'd just come from a, a discussion, a debate, a seminar on what's clean and what's not unclean. And now here was this unclean, non-covenant woman annoying them on their holiday in Tyre and Sidon, and wouldn't she just get out of the way? Lord, just tell her to get lost. She's not one of us. Uh, we, we need her to go. Can you sort it out? So she's having this rejection. How would she feel? Then Jesus says, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the next thing he says is, I've not been sent to you. How would she feel about that? Now, Luke, uh, in uh, Mark's version, he, give, he, says, he says a little bit more. He said, he didn't just say, I was not sent except to the lost houses of the house of Israel. But Jesus actually said, that I am not yet sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Not yet. In other words, Jesus understood that the first phase of his ministry before his cross and resurrection was exclusively for the lost sheep of Israel. There was a priority in his ministry to Israel. Then at Pentecost, celebrating that next week, His second phase through the disciples would be to all the Gentiles, non-Jews of the world. Now, how many people do we have in this place today, I wonder, who are by birth or by natural descent Jews? Have you got any Jewish people here today? Just wave at me. You're you're a natural Jew? No, any natural Jewish people here? Well, so we don't have any here today. So, many of you are Christians here today, the vast majority... Do you know that the treatment she got is exactly the treatment that you'd have got if you'd been there at that time? You know, sometimes we forget that we've been saved and we're part of the family and Jesus, Jesus has brought us in by his blood. You'd have got the same. If you had stood before the Lord with whatever need that you have before you got saved, Jesus would have just, said, just blanked you. The disciples, they wouldn't be going, oh, look who it is. You're from KT, aren't you? Oh, you've, oh, fancy meeting you in Tyre and Sidon. Oh, let's, let's fellowship. They would say, get lost. I don't care what temple you're from. You're not Jewish. You're on the out, not the in. You're unclean. Go on, get lost. No wonder he didn't speak to you. Then you go, hey, wait a second. Wait a second. I thought we were brethren. And then Jesus said, I've not been sent to you yet. How would you feel? Well, let me explain what's happening here by turning you to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11. 
Our senior minister, Colin, spoke on this during communion last week, and it struck me. Because it speaks right into what was going on with this in-out Gentile Jew that was in this situation. Um, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11. Speaking to us, Gentiles, therefore remember, Kensington Temple, that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, unclean, by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. And at that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has, who, has made, who, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is in the law, commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, that's Jew and Gentile, making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. So here we see that on the cross, Jesus opened up God's love to the whole world, and it was at a price, the price of his blood. Jesus died so that the whole world could have access to the bread of God's salvation. This is what's happening here. Now, the next thing that Jesus does is insult her because he says to her, having said he's only been sent at that moment to the lost sheep of Israel, he then says, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Well, at that moment, I think I'd have been done. <laughs> I think I would have, I, th I think there would have been nothing. I think I would have tried to tolerate for the sake of my daughter I'd have cringed at the disciples' rudeness, seeming racism that was going on, and then, and then that last thing, to call me a dog, because of course in those days the Jews did think that Gentiles were dogs. To call me a dog was the last straw I think I would, I would have left. But what if she had left at that moment? What would have been her abiding remembrance of that experience? What over the years, how long would her daughter have lived, I'd wonder? She'd have taken back with her a very negative story, wouldn't she? She'd be thinking, what a nasty man that was. What a nasty bunch of disciples. Don't even care about the situation. Didn't give me the time of day. Called me a dog. What sort of people are these? Daughter's still ill. Then, you know, for all the rest of her life, that would be the story that she carried. But thank God she didn't give up. And her testimony became something so radically different. And her understanding of Jesus also came radically different. Now, I believe that there are many of us here today and watching on, on the internet that we have stopped too soon in seeking Jesus to change the status quo. Some of us have given up and now we're carrying a story or an experience that is not the truth. 
It would be like the Syrophoenician Canaanite woman going home too early and carrying with her a negative story of non-change, a misunderstanding and a misappreciation of Jesus for the rest of her life. I wonder what we're carrying that we don't need to carry. I wonder what status quo we've accepted in our personal lives and circumstances, in our church life and circumstance, in our London city circumstances, in Britain, in Europe as a church. What circumstances have we tried and failed at, brought to the Lord, not seen a change, given up, and are now making some story about, well, this is the way it is. There's nothing that we can be done about it. What if she gave up? What if we give up? You see, what she had is a word that is well known in times preceding great revivals. She had importunity in prayer. Importunity in prayer. Many of you may not even have heard that word, and that's something in itself because we don't preach on it enough. Importunity. Her prayers were importune. What do we mean by that? Well, I've got a definition of importunity for you to do with prayers. Importunity. Troublesomely urgent. Overly persistent in request or demand. Troublesomely urgent, overly persistent in request or demand. She was importune in her prayers. Another quote of this is, urgent or persistent in solicitation or petition, sometimes annoyingly so. She was annoying Jesus. She was annoying them. Although maybe if she annoyed Jesus, I think he was beginning actually to become intrigued by what was going on. But she was certainly annoying the disciples. Now, this is a theme that Jesus taught on in the Gospels. It wasn't just this one-off woman that wouldn't give up until she got. Think of the persistent widow, the parable of the persistent widow. Do you remember that? Now, that judge was an unjust judge in the story. And he just didn't have time for her. He didn't care for anything to do with justice. But the persistent widow would not give up. Day and night outside his home, she shouted and cried out for justice. In the end, he couldn't cope with it anymore. Not because he believed in justice, but because he wanted a quiet life. He gave her what she needed. Jesus said, ask and keep asking. Have that attitude. And if that's what an unjust judge gives... How much more? The judge of all men. Also, we have an example of blind Bartimaeus. Do you remember him sitting by the road? And Jesus is coming along, and he hears that Jesus is coming along. He was sitting. There were crowds in front of him. Uh, And what did he begin to do? Son of David, have mercy on me. And he was shouting, and he was annoying people. And they began to tell him to shut up. But the more they told him and discouraged him to to shout, the greater his shout was. He knew that Jesus was passing by, and this was his only opportunity, and he was not going to be denied. And he cried out with importunity, stop Jesus in his tracks, and Jesus healed the man. See, this is important for us today to understand. Because... What was going on inside that woman during this process? I've mentioned this a little bit earlier. Uh, Offense? What was going on? By the time the disciples and Jesus had finished with her, she had no ego at all. 
She had died to any pride. I mean, she she was from a Greek background, probably quite wealthy. She had died to who she was, died to her pride, died to her ego. All she wanted was Jesus to heal her daughter. But not only that, in the end, she came to a place where she had nothing else but worship. Look at this, verse 25, she came and worshipped him. None of the disciples had worshipped Jesus to this point. In fact, the disciples had not yet recognised who he really is at this time. She had. She began to worship him. Why? Because she had nothing else. Because she realised that she was powerless, but she realised that he was powerful, and she believed that he was God. She believed that he was God, and so instead of demanding, she just threw herself on the mercy of Almighty God in human form. The disciples, when they saw her worship Jesus, you can bet they would have been offended. Oh, this typical Gentile, worshipping they didn't worshipping a man they didn't know yet have a full revelation that not only was the, the son of God, but he was the eternal word. Yet she was far, far ahead of them because she'd emptied herself. And Jesus replied and uh, said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. The children's bread. This is a picture of the kingdom of God. And the promises of the covenant and, and God's kingdom come. We said, we sang this morning, your kingdom come, your will be done. This is the children's bread. Now, when Jesus called her a dog, he was thinking in Jewish terms. In other words, Gentiles were dogs. They were outside the covenant with God. That was their status. Jesus was going to fix that on the cross, but that was their current status. But she replied, not with the Jewish understanding of dogs, which were, you never let a dog in the house. Uh, Dogs aren't to be petted. Dogs aren't to be friended. Dogs were unclean. That was the Jewish understanding, and Jesus said that. But she came back with the Greek understanding of dogs. And the Greek understanding with dogs is that they did have house-trained dogs. That's why she said, even the little dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Well, you wouldn't have a dog at a master's table in a Jewish household, but you would in a Greek household. And so this type of uh, persistence in prayer, pushing through, turned everything around. And she got what she got then uh, on credit. I mean, imagine if if when Jesus had said to her, I've only yet come to the lost sheep of Israel. And she had said, okay, well, at what time will you be going to the Gentiles? Or not for a couple of years yet, and then we got to have Pentecost. All right, well, your will be done, uh, whatever's sovereign. No, she didn't wait for some sovereign act of God. But actually, God was already working in her, because this wasn't just her desire, but the Holy Spirit was working in her. She wanted to see change now, And this is the, the fervency of prayer that God is looking for today. She may be a dog, but she was a hungry dog. And what Jesus would find and is that when he, when he wasn't given honor, is that the children that were at the table didn't even appreciate the bread that was there. He found this again and again in his ministry. The children that were at the table turned their noses up 
at the food. Have you ever had a child, or, be, or when you were a child, have you ever looked at, looked at food and went, ooh? My mother used to tell me that when I was a young child, and we lived in Libya at the time, she said my favorite word was yuck. And everything that she would bring to the table, unless it was um, bananas, I would say yuck. So she'd bring me something new, yuck, something yuck. So I was turning my nose at, yeah, you can bet that there was some starving dogs and starving people who wouldn't say yuck to it. Could it be that sometimes we children of the covenant are too spoilt? The bread's there. We can't even bother to pray for the bread. We just expect it to fall into our laps. But she didn't have the faith of the dog, but she certainly had dogged faith. She said, I'm hungry for this. I'm hungry. I'm hungry for this. How hungry are you for change? How hungry are you for God's kingdom to really come and change circumstance and change church and change city and change nation and change Europe? How hungry we need to be ravenous for the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, to come to God with importunity. Because what sort of prayers are going to break the status quo in Britain and Europe today? What sort of prayers? It, it, you know, it's not going to be little WhatsApps up to heaven. Oh, beep, beep. What's that in heaven? Oh, Bruce has just sent up a WhatsApp. What did he send? Save London. All right. Is that it? Yes, he's expecting us to move on the basis of that. Heaven is a busy place. What sort of prayer is going to turn the attention of Almighty God from the important things that he's doing? Now, I know there's other types of prayers, and God can just answer a simple prayer in a moment. I understand that. We're talking about not the, all the other prayers that we use. We're talking about a prayer that is not used in Europe, by and large, today by the Christian church. And could that be the reason that Europe is in the state that it is? You see, God works through importunity in prayer to change circumstances but even more importantly God works in the heart of the person that refuses to give up in prayer sometimes God allows things in our lives our towns our cities our nations and he wants and he doesn't answer us immediately because he wants there to be a change in our heart the greatest change that will take place on the inside of you will come through persistent praying. And God will give us opportunities for persistent praying, crying out day and night. Passion people, I said that desperate situations don't move the hand of God. Desperate people do. God is looking for a desperate people a desperate covenant people who will cry out for change to come in their circumstances and in their city and their nations. And while we cry out, God changes us. You're not going to change what's happening, the Lord. But you're going to change when the passion of the Holy Spirit that's in you, it's already there. The desires, the passions are there. You need to allow the Holy Spirit to bring those out. Maybe there's a circumstance in your life that you've given up. Don't give up. Keep on knocking. Keep on asking. Not just that the circumstance will change, 
But even more importantly, that you will change. You will be different. You know, the greatest impact you can have on this earth in the short time that you're here is in the secret place. Before God, like this woman was before Jesus, praying and interceding. That's the greatest thing that you can do. Too often we Christians, we're too busy trying to do things, but we've got no prayer backing it up. We've got no prayer power, and we wonder why it fails. No, prayer first, then out of prayer will come action. True prayer, true impassioned, the Holy Spirit. I want to finish on this today. If, um, if, you, if you look at uh, the Collins keynote for Pentecost Sunday, which is coming next Sunday, in the Revival Times, the angle that he takes on Pentecost is he's not actually speaking so much of the day of Pentecost, but he's speaking about the 50 days that led up to the day of Pentecost. For 50 days, all that was left of the ministry of Jesus... 130 people, gathered in an upper room, and by the leading of the Spirit of God in their hearts, began to cry out for the Spirit of God to be poured down on the earth. 50 days. They cried out. They prayed. They prayed. They didn't give up on day one, two, three, or four, but for 50 days, they knew Stay in Jerusalem until the promise of my Father is poured out from on high. And they prayed it through. Now, this is important because we know that on the day of Pentecost, Peter prophesies, this is what Joel said in Joel chapter 2. Do you remember that? I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. But in Joel, it doesn't just happen like that. The first chapter and a half of Joel looks out at the environment that needs change and it is a devastated environment totally and utterly devastated and broken in every sense of the word desolation then out of that desolation God calls on his people to weep between the porch and the altar in other words come to the porch and to look out at what's going on and then to weep to intercede at the altar to turn to him on behalf of the land only after this intercession, this ongoing prayer takes place, does the Lord then relent because they pushed through to mercy. His judgment was there, but they pushed through his judgment into mercy by the power of the Holy Spirit, and then God poured out his Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was not poured out on all of Israel. It was not even poured out on all of Jerusalem. It was not even poured out on a whole street, not even in a whole house, but limited. It was poured out in an upper room on 130 people. Only 130 people were ready for the greatest outpouring that ever took place because God, for 50 days, had been working through their prayers to prepare people that would be ready for the blessing. Wouldn't just take it for granted. Wouldn't just take it for granted. But when it came, because of their importune prayer, their intercession and their, their persistence, it meant so much more to them. Can you imagine if Jesus had turned up at the woman's house, said, here I am, I'm Jesus, move out of the way, there's your daughter, she's healed and walked away. Well, she'd be marvelously impressed. But how do you think she felt when she got that answer that came out of her persistence? she would have loved and been grateful for the rest of her life. 
And you know, after all that talk of cleaning the outside and cleaning the inside, she was the only one that was clean around Jesus at that time because she had faith that came out of the heart. It's faith that makes you clean before God. Faith in his blood. Faith in his majesty. Faith in his power.